The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, I'm here with Mike Simanchik, Managing Attorney of the California Innocence Project. Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, we've made a habit of opening this podcast with one question, and that is, how are you and your family doing? Uh, generally, we're okay. Uh, my son actually was had he was sick with a bit of a cough going like two and a half weeks back, and so we we're kind of like a little stressed. Oh, maybe he's got it. Maybe working. I can imagine. Um, but you know, it's really turned out to be it's kind of gone to the wayside. And it's fine. Um, but otherwise, yeah, we're we're generally okay. We're just uh, cooped up in a tiny 750 square foot apartment. Um, and, and tell us a little bit more about your your situation. Where are you and what are the current orders that are in force? So I'm in San Diego, California, and uh, our governor uh, ordered us to stay at home. If you're an essential employee for whatever, you know, that might be so healthcare or, you know, maybe you work at a grocery store or something, then you can still go to work. But for us, we're, we're at home. We're not non-essential employees. Um, and our mayor actually went one step further and, and closed down all the parks and trails and beaches and the ocean. Essentially, you can't get in wow. the water. So uh, even if you do want to leave your house, uh, you're pretty restricted as far as what you can and can't do. So does that mean there's no surfing in San Diego right now? There is no surfing right now. Wow. Uh, I actually was out on, I've been going for runs a lot of days just to see what's going on out there. And uh, Sunday was the first day they shut all the parking lots down because there were too many people frequenting the beach. And then Monday, they uh, they actually stationed police officers at all of the entry points to the ocean, basically. Um, and if anybody got in, they would just call the lifeguards and tell them to go down there wow. and get everybody wow. out of the water. So, yeah. Well, San Diego is one of my favorite cities in the, the U.S. And you just when you're down there, you see how integral things like surfing and hiking and getting outdoors are to the community there. And uh, here in Vancouver, we've seen a, a similar uh, shutdown of many popular trails and uh, the beaches as well. And it's it's uh, yeah made a tough situation even even tougher in some ways. But it feels like the right the right public health me measures. Um, you know, Mike, I'd love to. Talk a little bit about what's on your, your mind most right now. What are you uh, concerned about? Uh, how do you think about approaching this crisis? Would love just to, to see what, what is at the top of your mind right now. Um, personally, obviously, it's health and safety of friends and family and everybody and making sure that all of my friends and family are doing what they should, which is stay home. Uh, professionally, uh, there's so I work at the California Innocence Project, as you said, and um, so we're thinking a lot about our clients and the fact that they don't have the ability to kind of isolate themselves uh, in a safe and healthy way uh, because they're incarcerated. And so that's kind of what, what's been on my mind as far as this whole thing. And then, you know, just kind of thinking, how long is this going to last? Um, obviously, I want it to last as long as, as it needs to in order to um, keep everybody um, as healthy as possible. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we need to go get back to work and, and try to get people out of prison that shouldn't be there in the first place. So kind of all of those things. Yeah. We'll go deeper into the, the impacts of COVID-19 and the uh, 
in the jails that and and the individuals that you're helping navigate the uh, the landscape there. But but maybe before we get there, can you can you just tell us a little bit more broadly what does the California Innocence Project do? What's your mandate and and maybe a little bit more about your personal history there? Sure. So the California Innocence Project works to um, free the wrongfully convicted from prison, and we we focus primarily on Southern California. Um, in a given year, we get somewhere around 1,500 requests for assistance. So every single year, 1,500 new people write to us and say, hey, I'm innocent, I'm in prison, and I need some assistance getting out of here. Um, we end up doing full-blown investigations on, I would say, about 100 to 150 of those cases. So we, we cut it down quite a bit. Um, a lot of the people that are writing to us say that um, you know they, they might have issues that we're not going to deal with, or maybe their, their appeal or their uh, appeal isn't final or they're still going through trial. So they're not really uh, ready for us to, to step in. They have, they have lawyers helping them in other different, other, other areas. Uh, but so we, we're looking for people that are innocent and incarcerated and it's our job to try to get them out. So since our office opened in 1999, we have freed uh, 30 people who uh, spent collectively 460 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Wow, uh, and you know the longest uh, wrongful incarceration that we've we've won uh, was thirty six years, and the shortest uh, I want to say was four years. So everywhere from from somebody that spent four years in prison to over three decades, and I think the average for our office is around twenty two years uh, when you look at all of the people that we've freed. So, uh, so that's that's kind of the the summary of what uh, what CIP does. Um, I got involved in my first week of law school. I, I showed up. Um, I was. I actually went to law school thinking I was going to prosecute white collar crime. Um, it was kind of around the time of the uh, the last, actually, the last uh, economic downturn. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I thought, like, I wanted to go work for the uh, SEC, try to put away Bernie Bernie Madoff and and those yep. types of folks. Yeah. And the very first week of law school, I, I sat in on, on a session where a guy named Tim Atkins uh, came to the law school to talk to to or to students. Uh, and he talked about how he had he had spent 23 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Um, he had been home for four months and I was 23 years old. And so this guy had spent my entire life in prison for something he didn't do. And wow. he said, there's thousands more just like me. Uh, so come, you know, work for CIP if you can as a student. And so I got in as a clinic student and uh, really haven't looked back. Well, you guys do truly exceptional work at the the California Innocence Project. And we have, uh, as you know, a, a customer story video that we we made of uh, you and your 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 team the, uh, at the California Innocence Project and, and highlighting a few of the stories there. And you know, even though I've watched that video dozens of times, it still uh, moves me deeply every time I watch it. It's just such important work you're doing. And I'm I'm, I'm curious, pivoting to the COVID-19 situation, what, what did the practicalities of having to send the team to, to work from home and move to a fully distributed environment look like? Can you just tell us what that transition looked like and how you're trying to keep things moving to the extent you are? Yeah, certainly it was a challenge. Um, as I said, we get 1,500 new requests for assistance every year. We typically receive about 4,000 letters that come to the office. So um, the prison system is still you know, 20 years behind, if not more, 
um, we're still, you still have to use a fax machine for with a lot of the prisons in order to wow. um, get access to them for legal visits. Um, so as far as like communicating with our clients, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, we can't have, they can't uh, collect call us on our cell phones. Uh, and so we're not getting phone calls, letters. We're, you know, occasionally stopping by the office to pick up big bins of, of mail and, and going through that and seeing what, what they're saying and trying to respond to those. So there's really been a, a huge slowdown when, when it comes to that. Uh, as far as some of the other stuff, I mean, we can't really do investigation now. I can't go out and interview witnesses. We can't, we're not going to the prison. Um, originally our, our students were still interested in going out and talking to some of our clients and trying to track down witnesses, but uh, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be the people to bring COVID-19 into a prison and, right. and be the reason why, you know, a lot of our clients end up sick and a lot of the people that are in there that are essentially helpless for, from this virus. Um, right. We don't want to be the cause of that. So we canceled all of our prison visits. Uh, we held our class on Zoom and, uh, and everybody moved home. So practically speaking, it's, it's certainly been a challenge. Um, we have, we, we have uh, all of our files are um, electronic, so we were, we're still able to access our files and we use Clio. So we're obviously we're able to see where our cases are and we're able to make changes in that respect. Uh, what we actually we were all supposed to be at a conference this week and uh, that got canceled. So we uh, we saved about sixteen thousand uh, dollars by not going to a conference. And so I reallocated uh, money from a grant and put it towards additional scanners and and printers to allow all of our staff to have that at their houses. So, uh, so they're at least able to have a home office that they can, they can use and, and make somewhat functional. Yeah, that's great. So you're, you're still able to access your data and to the extent you're able to move cases forward, but the, just all the cogs in the wheel are kind of stopped in terms of what you need to do to advance the representation of some of your clients. Definitely. And actually, on top of all of that, the, the courts in California are all currently suspended. So um, unless you have some, you know, something that's like, like, a essentially like a temporary restraining order that you need to get mm -hmm. filed, uh, for the most part, none of the courts are, are working right now. So all of your cases, all of our cases that were in litigation are on hold right now as well. So and what, what are you what are you hearing from the courts? Are you getting any kind of guidance in terms of we're trying to figure out how we transition to the cloud. Uh, you know, we've heard about this Zoom thing and the internet. We're trying to figure that out. You know, cur curious, what are you, what are you hearing in terms of how the courts are responding, or is it radio silence? Uh, no, the courts have been. I mean, they've been communicating quite, quite a lot. Uh, you know, there's there's certain aspects of the of the the court system that just can't. They won't translate to. Uh, Zoom, like you can't, we're not going to bring 12 jurors on to Zoom and have them hear, you know, uh, a case over, over the internet. That's just not, so, so essentially the trials are on hold until I think right now they're, we're well into April, probably looking like we're not going to have any jury trials until May. I think they said no jurors until May. Um, as far as the appeals and stuff, uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely, I don't, I don't know that the court of appeal has, um, video appearance. I don't think they do. I know uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, just ordered the California Department of Corrections uh, to start conducting parole hearings on Zoom. And so they're, at, because if you don't, then, yep. yeah, so that that's one thing that they've, they were already using video technology to allow victims next to kin to come and speak at parole hearings. That's been going 
since 2014 at least is the first time I saw that happen. So they had the technology already in place. It was just kind of expanding it to um, the, the other lawyers and the other folks that would be involved in a hearing. So some some parts of the criminal justice system are kind of a little bit further along, but some are just not going to be able to get there. And I, I think the trial court system is, is certainly one of those. So, so beyond the impacts the California Innocence Project is seeing on itself, uh, what are, what impacts are you seeing COVID-19 have on uh, the people you represent? Yeah, um, well, we have we actually have uh, a client that is set to be released. So the governor uh, commuted her sentence and made her instantly eligible for parole. She went to a parole hearing in November and her release date is was set to is set to be the beginning of April. Um, and so we're hoping that she perhaps the governor will sign off on that. Uh, a week or two sooner so she can go home, you know, ASAP and, and avoid contracting the virus while, while she's incarcerated. Um, so in, in terms of her, I mean, things are looking good. We've got a couple other cases that we've been um, speaking to the governor's staff about and hoping that the governor will step up and, and cut them loose, uh, you know, either commute their sentences or part, give them full pardons just to send them on their way. And uh, we're kind of still waiting uh, to hear back on a couple of those. So in terms of those clients, um, you know, we're, I mean, we're up, we're cautiously optimistic that we can sort of see something happen sooner rather than later. The others, um, you know, the other clients that um, really we're not going to have any movement on, they're all kind of just super nervous, hunkering down and um, wondering. I mean, they're getting, they get less information than we do. So they're not sitting there scrolling through articles and reading through tweets and trying to figure out what's the best practice for how to how to handle right. this. They get right. whatever's on cable news. So you get three or four channels and they're, they're kind of just seeing what's coming across the airwaves and seeing that a lot of people are getting sick and, and in fact dying from this. And, um, you know, they don't really have, um, you know, they essentially, they've got your, your high school nurse as their, their healthcare provider in, in these prisons. Um, they don't really have good way, a great way of cleaning, um, and, and, trying to disinfect everything and they're stuck in small spaces. So if any one person gets it, then, um, you know, it's going to spread like wildfire. And we've seen that in, I think three prisons now in California, it's already happened. So. Yeah. It, it, all the conditions of a prison system feel like a, a powder keg for, for COVID-19. Definitely. Uh, to that. And I'm, I'm sure testing and everything else around prisons, even less than the general population, which is already too low. So, Certainly. Um, um, are, are you working on any initiatives that are directly related to COVID-19 given this new landscape? Um, as far as uh, initiatives, nothing like, you know, statewide to try and get, um, you know, any movement across the entire, you know, prison population or jail population. Although we've been in, uh, you know, on a bunch of emails and, and calls with, you uh, various different, at least a couple of us have been with various different uh, defense attorneys in town that are trying to work on that. Uh, but for us, no, it's more that we're just trying to encourage the governor to to free those that are innocent. I mean, they should be the ones that should be cut loose first anyway, right? And they should have been, um, even if you thought there was some inkling of innocence, then we should have been thinking about sending them home earlier uh, regardless. So uh, just hoping that the governor will take some action and um, and do the right thing and just try to get as many people home as possible before this thing really takes off inside. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. Agree. That's uh, fingers crossed. They, they take that kind of action. Um, let's shift to, to law schools for a moment. What do you think the impacts of COVID-19 will be on? And, and maybe what are you already seeing on schools such as the California Western School of Law? Uh, how do you think this will impact students and staffing levels and so on over the, you know, the rest of this this semester, I guess, as well as maybe even more broadly the next year? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, our, the dean of our law school has uh, been very proactive in this. Actually, he called us. Uh, he we have uh, a very small space and had a, have our students kind of all bunched into this tiny little room. And so before anybody had done anything in this state or really in, in the entire country, he called us and said, look, I'm really worried. You have a lot of people in a tight space. I'd, you need to end your your clinic early and start moving online. And so um, being proactive like that, I think really helped. Actually, two of our clinic students have uh, COVID-19. Is, uh, they've been diagnosed, though they've not been tested because there are no tests available for uh, the young, healthy folks that are out there. But uh, two of our, our clinic students have been diagnosed with it and are I'm you know, sorry to hear that. And they seem, they seem to be doing okay. Uh, but Good. it's, uh, you know, I think, I think the dean was right to send everybody home from our office as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, it only took two, two or three more days before the entire uh, law school shifted online. Uh, our law school has decided to, for the, rest, for the rest of not just this trimester, but the enti- entire summer trimester, uh, classes will be online and online only. So that takes us through the second week in August. Um, and so we won't have any students actually coming to campus. I think, I think we're going to see, and I, I imagine this is going to probably be um, nationwide that you're going to see a lot, a, a lot of law school shifting to online. Uh, we already had a number of uh, classes that were offered online, uh, where you didn't have to come to campus, and I, I would see a big shift, uh, an even greater shift in that um, direction. I would think, uh, you know, I know there's ABA requirements that you have a law library. Uh, you know, maybe that's something that we reconsider. And, and I mean, all of the books are online at this point. All of the legal right. research happens online. Um, do we really need to be coming together, spending, well, first of all, spending millions of dollars on this brick and mortar um, and then staffing it and having, you know, all these paper products, um, you know, actually in stock for students if they're not using them anymore. And so I think this is really going to uh, kind of drive people further down the road of, of uh, online and and, and could very well change uh, uh, legal education for the future. Yeah, I think there's uh, a silver lining we can hope for in in this crisis, which which obviously has a, a steep human toll that we need to be aware of. But I do think it'll catalyze some really positive change in in all aspects of the legal profession. And I think you know some some of the elements of that, you know, all the way from the courts to the, the education system uh, for, for lawyers could, could use a uh, uh, deeper embrace of technology. And hopefully this will help drive some of that. Definitely. Um, so Mike, your, your wife is a, a solo attorney with her own practice. So your household, you've got two unique perspectives, maybe on the impacts of COVID-19. You've seen the direct impacts uh, on the California Innocence Project. And you see, you know, maybe some of the looming and dangerous impacts on the the broader prison system. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, through the, the lens that is, is your, your wife, what do you see happening in the, you know, the solo market, maybe in particular, what impacts are you seeing on, on her practice and, uh, on her clients? 
Yeah. So uh, thankfully for her practice, she was, when she started her practice, uh, she started uh, electronic uh, using Clio and, and really doing everything uh, digitally. Uh, and, and part of that was because she started by working from home with no office space. And so right. it wasn't really feasible to, you know, to have some big office with a bunch of books or papers stacked up around. Right? What, what turned out to be a great dry run. It, it was a perfect dry run, exactly. She eventually uh, graduated to a, a co-working space, um, but about two and a half weeks ago, we had a conversation, and we're actually expecting our second child. And it was like, oh, congratulations! Uh, thank you. And so we're uh, we're kind of like, oh, it's probably time to uh, both of us to start thinking we we need to get home and and not be exposing ourselves to this. We, I mean, even though there's you know there's a, there's not a lot. I haven't heard a lot of the news about you know. Um, you know, kids having any issues with it and haven't heard anything in particular about um, women that are pregnant. But uh, so we, we got Nikki moved out of uh, the co-working space and got her uh, shifted home. And uh, and really, it's in terms of like actually getting the work done, uh, I think for her, it's it's not that there it's any different than it was when she was the co-working space with the with the caveat that you have a three-year-old that's tugging on your sleeve or your arm or talking in the background at all times wanting to play trucks and so (laughs) that obviously has some some impact on your productivity but um i think the the thing that really has uh, changed in terms of her actual um, ability to practice law it really what it's come down to is um, she does some estate planning stuff and you have to uh, witness signatures, and especially if you're um, if you're you're having trust documents signed, and uh, you know. So how do you do that if you're supposed to be there and you're supposed to have two witnesses in order to get a will signed or to move right. property into a trust? Right. If you're supposed to be pr- physically present, watching somebody, and then at the end of watching them do their signature. My, my wife's a notary, so she actually will notarize all of, do, all of the documents. And in California, you can't notarize something unless you're there physically present. Right. Like, that's just not possible. And so that's something that uh, I know all of the estate planners are kind of trying to figure out, what do we do? And so, um, you know, I, that, that's something that um, she's kind of sort of had to tackle. And um, at this point, at least, she's thinking that... Um, you know, the, the best, actually the best way to do it is just to video the signature. So they're, you know, do it over a zoom call and watch them sign it on camera. And then she will just have to do a declaration saying that. And then if it ever is challenged in court, she has to produce the evidence to, to show that the signature was valid and actually happened. And this is the person that did it, you know, in a lot of ways though, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. I, I I think that the the video evidence is better than the, just having two witnesses and a and a signature that says that you know they were who they say they were. Right. We actually have video of them now, and yep. here it is. So there's no there's no human memory to depend on, and right. there's you don't you've always got that video evidence of right. of what happened at hand. Uh, another great example of we're doing things the way we've been doing them for a hundred years and, and right. maybe new technology actually affords some new right. solutions here. Uh, you know, that the wills and estates certainly seems like one of the practice areas that, uh, may, and, and maybe it's necessarily so because of the stakes, but, uh, that still require wet signatures on documents. And and like you said, witnesses and, and other measures to make sure that, that everything is documented properly. But, How's that translate into the 21st century when we do have tools like like video 
even right. know your client rules, for example, and the the tools we need around around that to authenticate somebody it could be completely different uh, in right. the year 2020 than what we're currently leaning on. Right. And then, you know, like thinking about mental capacity, you know, if I'm if I'm the attorney and I'm trying to judge somebody's mental capacity to enter uh, into an agreement or sign a new trust or, um, you know, if I say that they have mental capacity, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But if I have them tell a story about how they went to where, you know, when was the last time they went to the store and you put that all on video, it would seem like it would be a little bit better than uh, just taking my word for it. You know, right. Um, and, and how about business? What trend is your wife seeing in her practice? Is that a practice area that's getting busier maybe as people are, uh, you know, thinking about the future and downside scenarios in a more clear way, or is she seeing a reduction in business because people are, are so inward focused right now? Yeah, I would say we were certainly a bit concerned that business would, would be slowing down. Uh, but that's, that's actually not been the case. Um, so she does some business formation stuff. She does nonprofit formation and then does some estate planning. And um, all, all three areas have, uh, have, we've seen some business come in along the way over the last two weeks. And, um, you know, I think, I think people are, I, I think estate planning, obviously people are a little bit freaked out by this whole thing. And they're, maybe that's like actually lighting the fire they needed to be lit, that needed to be lit. Uh, but as far as like the business and nonprofit stuff, it seems like, you know, people are, are thinking that they're going to weather the storm and, and things will be back where they were before um, in just a few short months. So if they can kind of get through that, then it'll all be okay. So a couple of minor tweaks and stuff that we've seen um, from some, some of the businesses and stuff. But by and large, the, the businesses, the, the calls are still coming in, which is great. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. So out of your apartment in San Diego, you are running the California Innocence Project. Your wife is running her own solo law firm and you have a, a three-year-old running around the house to boot. Oh yeah. All of those things. And, <laughs> and we're really, we're really trying to do our best to, to knock all those out of the park. But I got to say, I, I've been playing a lot of trucks over the last couple of weeks. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can't go surfing to, to rub salt in the wound. No, no, you, you can run, but, uh, as, as, as it happens, I get yelled at by going uh, a little too far into a park, uh, two days ago. So, <laughs> I, I guess uh, the exonerate hat didn't scare them off. So, <laughs> um, well, look, this has been a, an amazing conversation, Mike. Uh, maybe to close out, would love to uh, hear any main message you might want to share with our our listeners. You know, addressing them either as legal professionals or or just as people. Um, just to you know, know that this this obviously is is this virus is impacting everybody, and uh, you know. I think everybody, we're all going to get through this, but keep in mind that there are some folks that have uh, less ability to deal with it than others. And, and those would be primarily those that are incarcerated that don't have freedom to move around. And, uh, you know, as you're sitting in your apartment and uh, really kind of upset about being confined to your 750 square feet or whatever it is that you have, know that there's somebody that's probably in an eight by 10 with uh, no internet and no computer and no Netflix to to kill the time and and also they don't have any kind of health care coming their way if they get sick so um you know it's uh we're, we're i'm at i'm at the california innocence project you can find us at californiainnocenceproject.org and uh we'll see you on the other side of this thing that's great 
Well, uh, thanks for that parting thought, Mike. It's been great having you on the podcast. Really appreciate you joining us today. And again, thank you for all the impactful, important work you and your team at the California Innocence Project do every day and look forward to this being behind us and you being able to get back to moving at the velocity you normally do in advancing uh, these cases. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. And for more resources to help lawyers navigate the challenges of COVID-19, please visit clio.com slash COVID-relief.